Hey, hey, welcome. Happy, happy Mother's Day. Of course, I say that. And with the first word out of my mouth, um, you must know how much we appreciate, and um, Nathan needs to know, he's doing the production today, and his fantastic series on different. Uh, I just think it'd be worthy to let him know how grateful we are. It was such a good series. And it allowed me to concentrate on some other things, and I'm just so grateful for his strong word. We are in the world, as he said, but we're not to be of it. We're to be different. Such a, such a good word. And let me add my deepest appreciation to all of the girls and the women and the ladies. You are appreciated. And it, I, I have a, mar- a remarkable mother. In fact, there was a Spanish proverb that I came across a couple of weeks ago that's fitting. Look at this. An ounce of mother is worth a a ton of priest. That's true. That's very, very true. And nowhere is that more true than in the passing on of faith. Two of Paul's 13 letters that he wrote were to a young disciple named Timothy. We don't know a whole lot about Timothy. It looks as though Timothy grew up in a biracial family who had parents who believed differently about Jesus. Look at this passage in Acts 16.1. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. So the faith of Timothy's mother and grandmother had this profound influence on him, and the apostle Paul knew that that kind of faith in Christ was desperately needed in this growing kingdom of God on earth. Paul was forever grateful for the godly upbringing that Timothy received from the matriarchs in his family. From 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. If you skip from there to the third chapter, verse 14, but as for you, Paul says to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it, grandmother and mother, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Parents making Bible stories and Bible study a priority prevents things like this from happening. A New England high school teacher taught a course entitled The Bible as Literature. Only seniors and the top 10% of the class could take this course. A pretest was given to evaluate the student's biblical knowledge. And one student defined the epistles as the wives of the apostles. And a pastor was humored by this, and so he shared it the next Sunday in his sermon. And after the service, one of the church members approached him and said, Pastor, if the epistles weren't the wives of the apostles, whose wives were they? (laughs) Bible stories and Bible study prevents things like that from happening. It prevents this from happening too. Now, I was told this was a true story. I tried to verify it. I cannot verify it. So it makes me think that it probably isn't true. But here I am telling you the story anyway. 
pastor entered a class of grade schoolers. And the pastor said, who broke down the walls of Jericho? And one boy quickly answered, it wasn't me, sir. <laughs> and the pastor turned to the teacher and said, is this usual behavior in this class? And the teacher replied, I believe the boy an honest boy, and I really don't think he did it. <laughs> Leaving the room, the pastor sought a deacon and explained what happened. And the deacon said, I've known both the boy and the teacher for several years. Neither of them would ever do such a thing. <laughs> By this time, the pastor was heartsick, and he reported the incident <laughs> to the church education committee, to which they said, Pastor, we see no point in making an issue out of this thing. <laughs> let's pay the bill for the damage to the walls, and let's charge to it to upkeep anyway. I think our insurance will cover it. Oh, my goodness. Bible study and Bible reading helps prevent such things. If you visited our website, you may have read our statement of faith, and the third statement of belief says this. We believe that the Bible is God's word. It is accurate, authoritative, and applicable to our everyday lives. That's why when we preach, we preach from this written word that's been preserved. From the beginning of time, there's been an effort to sow seeds of doubt against the word of God. God created this beautiful paradise placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden with a few instructions. And the enemy quickly began with his questioning. This is the third chapter of Genesis, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? See how he's already twisting it? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The enemies of God have been questioning the accuracy and the authority of the Word of God from the very beginning. But try as they might, the Word of God will never fade. It won't do it. In fact, the Old and New Testaments make this bold proclamation. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of our God endures forever. The Word of the Lord is forever resilient. You think about it. What other book has the unique qualities of that Bible in your home? After thousands of years, it continues to be bought, taught, and distributed, loved more than any other book ever. Bestseller every year. Did you know that? Sells more than the bestseller every year. And what about the uniqueness of its unity? It's not just one book but it's a library of books, 39 in that Old Testament, 27 in the New. It's written over a period of 1,500 plus years by more than 40 different authors, and they didn't all come from the same walks of life. 
Yeah, some kings and, and, and great men like David and Solomon wrote in it, but it was also philosophers and poets and farmers and statesmen and priests and prophets and fishermen, and doctors, scholars. With such a variety of authorship and over a 15-century year span, you would expect this book to be nothing more than a mixed bag of inconsistencies. But instead, we have just the opposite. We have this overarching, beautiful theme from Genesis to Revelation of God's nature and his fantastic plan of redemption for all of us and all of creation. You see it throughout the whole thing clearly. There's not another. Can you name another book that was written over half the time span by 20 different authors? Can you name a book that was written over 100 years? lifespan by different authors. It has this beautiful theme working all the way through. There's not a book like it. It's so beautifully unique. And you think about its survival. All through history, it's been hated because its claim is that it is actually a living word. But in spite of all attempts, in all different eras, by emperors, dictators, totalitarian governments, all of their efforts to destroy by burning and confiscation, imprisonment and persecution to people who would read it and preach it and study it, it still remains as widely dispersed as ever. During the Stalin era in Russia, the Marxist government derided the Bible as a book full of legends and myths and old wives' tales. And during that time, the communist powers even established an anti-Bible museum in Moscow to try to convince the people just to leave it alone. Yet for all of their derisive efforts, the authorities were still so afraid that, people, that the people would get it and read it and believe it. They even put those that were found with it into prison and into labor camps. The reason they knew of this book's unique power to change people's lives. Martin Luther made this statement. Look at this. Mighty potentates have raged against this book and sought to destroy and uproot it. Alexander the Great, the princes of Egypt and Babylon, the monarchs of Persia, of Greece and of Rome, the emperors Julius and Augustus, but have prevailed nothing. They're gone while this book remains, and it will remain forever and ever, perfect and entire as it was declared at first. You talk about a resilient treasure that you have on your nightstand tables and coffee tables and at your kitchen table and in your pocket and your phone. It's wonderfully useful and trustworthy. Our benchmark text through this little three-week series is going to be this 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correction, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, we're going to dissect that even more carefully in these next two Sundays. And hopefully, I might even 
through the power of the Holy Spirit, be able to appeal to your intellect and to your thinking, to your mind in these coming two studies. But before we jump into that, I've just asked God, God, connect with our hearts today. Let us start here. Let us start here with this word. So I begin with this. A ship's captain pulled aside his chaplain, and he asked him, how is it that you are always talking to my man about Jesus Christ? Have you ever seen him? And the chaplain said, no, I've never seen him. And the captain said, then how can you tell a man to trust in someone that you've never seen? I just can't see any sense in that. And the chaplain replied, when you head for a place of refuge in a storm, what sense is there in telling your men to let go the anchor when they cannot see the ground? On what principle do you trust your ship and your life to ground you have never seen and never will see? And the captain said, oh, we go by our chart. And that chaplain held up his Bible and he said, I too go by a chart and it's infallible while yours is not. Mine tells me the only sure ground of my salvation, the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross, my faith like your anchor takes hold of this unseen but real ground and I ride out the storm of life in peace and safety. Christian Johnson said, a Bible that has fallen apart probably belonged to someone who isn't. Martin Luther also said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. We learn in the Bible that in spite of how we're living, we are in fact a saint. This weekend, Carl Medley speaking to us said that he was talking with a man who was in an immoral relationship. And Carl challenged him on that. And the man came back to him and said, well, I ain't no saint. Carl looked at him and said, who told you that? Who told you you're not a saint? I know you're living in this sinful way, but who told you? Did you know our sainthood is not dependent upon how we live, but it's in who we live for? We need to start challenging each other. Do you know where you learned that you're a saint in spite of the things that you do that are wrong? You learn that in the Word of God. The Word of God tells us that His righteousness has been given to us. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. <laughs> I'm a saint. You're a saint. And so if anybody, if you don't feel like you're a saint, then you're listening to a voice that isn't speaking truth. Consider this man named William. A young man, tried preaching, didn't feel the power of God, didn't see much results. One of his contemporaries that he affectionately called Chuck, Charles Templeton, got into academia and started to believe that Scripture was flawed and outdated. He challenged William. William wondered about all of it. Another friend, a lady by the name of Henrietta Mears, invited this William to speak at a Christian retreat called Forest Home. And the night before he went off alone into the nearby woods, William put his Bible on the stump and he had an honest talk with God. 
He recorded what he prayed. Oh God, there are many things in this book I don't understand. There are many problems with it for which I have no solution. There are many seeming contradictions. There are some areas in it that do not seem to correlate with modern science. I can't answer some of the philosophical or psychological questions Chuck and others are raising. And then William fell to his knees, and he said the Holy Spirit moved him, and he said, Father, I'm going to accept this as thy word by faith. I'm going to allow my faith to go beyond my intellectual questions and my doubts, and I'm going to believe this to be your inspired word. He later wrote that when he stood up, his eyes were stinging with tears, but he felt the power and the presence of God in a way that he hadn't. He said, a major bridge had been crossed in my life. The next day, he preached with a new vitality. In fact, his friend Henrietta Mears said that he spoke with an authority that she had never seen before. Over 400 people made a commitment to Christ that day, and a few weeks later, he would preach the historic Los Angeles crusade. A meeting that was supposed to go three weeks ended up going over eight. The career of an upstart evangelist took off. The world found Billy Graham, and Billy Graham found the Word of God. The Bible is the word of God that needs to be received by faith. There's a story about four preachers that were discussing the merits of various translations of the Bible. And one liked the King James Version because of that beautiful old English. And another one said, well, I really lean toward the New American Standard because that lines up closest with the Hebrew and the Greek. And another said, oh, no, not that for me. I want one of the contemporary versions with up-to-date vocabulary. And they waited for the fourth minister, who was silent for a moment. And then after a bit, he said, I like my mother's translation the best. And they said, your mother? Your mother translated the Bible? And he said, oh, yes. She translated it into life. And it's the most convincing translation I've ever seen or read. Some of us can identify with that, can't we? Many of us are fortunate to say with deep gratitude how grateful we are for our sincere faith, which first lived in our grandmother. In my case, that would be Ruby. And in my mother, in my case, that would be Judy, who's watching online right now. And now that sincere faith, which is in me, the written word, the written word, the lettered love found its way into my grandmother and my mother and me. And the lettered love can shape our story. Oh, Father, we just, we just want to fall in love with your written word again. We want to come closer. to You said if we draw near to you, you'll draw near to us. And you've left such a beautiful form for us to see who you are and what you're about. Let this rekindle something inside of us. Start with a new 
fervor and respect and desire for your word. We sing this to you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.